So I think it's just knowing your strengths, knowing how you can bring impact, explaining how you can shorten your learning curve. Um, and I think that that comes across as valuable and like just like the eagerness and the hunger to learn. You are now listening to the latest episode of the People of Digital Marketing podcast, the number one resource for marketers who want to impress their boss and eventually become their boss. And you just heard a clip from Zoe Hartsfield. Zoe is a salesperson trapped in a marketer's body. She spends her nine to five running executive evangelism programs, managing influencer relationships and creating content. She spends her five to nine running, traveling, and again, creating more content. Check her out on LinkedIn and check her out on TikTok at Not2Corporate, where she gives her thoughts on sales, marketing, mental health, and career development in the tech industry, as her past experience as a salesperson has helped her in her career. I thought this can help you as a marketer. And if by any chance you know anyone who is trying to transition from sales or customer care even to the role of marketer, this is definitely an episode you can share with them. We talk about a lot of things, including the advice that she has for anyone looking out for red flags and marketing job descriptions, how to leverage sales experience in a new marketing role, what does evangelism even mean, can you use community as a function in connection to a customer advisory board, the core business skill that every marketer needs to know, and much more. So if this piques your interest and you want to listen to our interview, well, check it out because it starts now. Hi, Zoe. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I, prior to recording this, I told you that the mission of this podcast is to essentially collect all the experience and the lessons from mistakes from marketing experts such as yourself so that the listener doesn't need to make them. And we're going to go in various directions on today's episode. But before we do that, it's always good to get context on who you are as a professional. My first question for you is, how did you become a marketer? This is a great question. I also love that one of your goals of the podcast is, you know, sharing some of the mistakes because I've probably made enough for like 10 people. Uh, so hopefully you can learn a thing or two from all of my missteps today. Uh, but yeah, I actually got my start in sales. I was an SDR and I was a pretty good SDR. And I pretty quickly realized that at least in my previous organization, now I, I love sales. My heart is with sales. I often say I'm a salesperson trapped in a marketer's body. Um, I work for a very transactional, like small ticket sales SaaS organization where you're selling like individuals, teams of like five or less. You know, these are, you know, a big deal was probably 3K um, unless you went up mid-market enterprise and we only had, you know, two or three reps doing that and uh, they had their own BDRs, whatever. But basically, like these were really like quick transactional deals. And so when I looked at my my next opportunity, if I was going to be promoted to an AE, I would be taking eight to 10 demos a day. I would be swiping credit cards. I would be handing them off to CS and I'd be done. And that just didn't sound like a fulfilling day to day to me. Now, like now I understand that sales is so much bigger than that. There's so many more segments. There's so many more like interesting things to do. But that was my whole world of context back then. So I was like, I don't think I want to be an AE. And I had a manager who was incredibly thoughtful. Shout out Dan Hawkins. Uh, still adore him to this day. He was like, OK, Zoe, like you don't want to go into sales. That's fine. What do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. He was like, OK, well, what do you not want to do ever again? Let's start there. And I was like, okay, I can do that. And so I started writing down the things about my job that I like hated. I was like, I don't want to 
wake up every single day and do the exact same thing. Like as an SDR, my day was the same. It's like time block my calls in the morning, then send the emails, then did it. Like my days looked identical across the board, pretty much. And I was like, I want more variety. I want more creativity. I want more projects end to end. I want to build relationships with people that last longer than just, okay, I booked your meeting. Have a great life. Like I kind of thought through what I didn't love. And then I figured out the things that I was really passionate about. What parts of my job brought me joy? And I loved copywriting. I loved A-B testing sequences. I loved training new hires. Those are the things that I love. And he's like, okay, so it sounds like maybe something more along like marketing or even like leadership could be an opportunity for you. He's like, I'd love for you to be a BDR manager. And I was like, wow, that would be incredible. He's like, yeah, but I'm not going to need one for like six to eight months. And he's like, so why don't, why don't we like take a look over at marketing? And so then... I was super intentional about this. I went and made best friends with everybody in the marketing department because it's a little bit easier. I don't know if you have this experience. It's easier to traverse internally than it is to try and get a job at a brand new company where you are unknown, unproven. You don't have the rapport. At least internally, I could make the pitch that I know our customers. I know our messaging. I know like how our product helps people. I've got really deep product knowledge of like technically how it works. So I have a lower ramp time than a person with a ton of experience, but who doesn't know our customer, who doesn't know our buyer, who doesn't know the personas and all of that stuff. So you have like a little bit of a competitive edge if you are trying to traverse internally versus like, I'm going to go try and get a marketing job for the first time at another company. So if anybody's out there like, I want to move from one department to another, that's the hack. If you can do it at the company you're already at and get like a year or two of experience under your belt there, then you can go to another company and do whatever after that. But I would, that's like the number one hack I would give to somebody. So I went and made best friends with everybody in the marketing department. I asked them about their day to day, asked them about their job. I figured out what things kind of aligned with my skill set and my passions. And then I went and found the VP and I was like, okay, Mr. VP, what would it take? Like, what are the skills I need to do this role that I saw that felt like attainable for me? He's like, well, this is what I would want to see in that type of marketer. Um, and I was like, okay, great. Like I'm going to work on those things. And then he was like, okay, great. And he started sending me like articles and being like, what are, what are your thoughts on this? He started like trying to build a relationship with me and get a vibe of how serious was I? And then he asked for my help on a project. And the caveat here is if you are ever trying to traverse like departments internally, you have to be crushing at your existing job. They hired you to do a job. I can't just suddenly be like, oh, I'm going to go give 80% of my time to marketing without like running it by anybody. So I was hitting quota, crushing, and my manager was like, why don't you give like 20% of your time to marketing? You got to keep got to keep your numbers up, but like, why don't you give 20% of your time to marketing? And so I didn't get a raise or anything like that, but I started working on projects with them and supporting. And then about four months into that process of the time I decided, I think I want to go into marketing. Um, then the VP slacked me one day and he's like, hey, um, Alexa just gave me her notice. I'm going to be opening up a rec similar to her job, but based on your skill set, I'm kind of like tweaking it a little bit. I expect your resume on my desk tomorrow morning. And I was like, okay, great. So basically they made a role with me in mind. It was not mine to have, but it was mine to lose. And so I then went through the interview process and they interviewed one other person externally who had five years of experience. Um, and at the final interview, the VP was like, why should I hire you over the person with five years of experience. And to this day, I don't know what came over me. I mean, it was like a very honest answer, but I wish I had like taken a beat and thought through it a little bit more. But I was just like, yeah, I don't know that you should. And he was like, what do you mean? 
I was like, yeah, I don't know that you should hire me. Like, I mean, if she's got five years of experience, if you want the experience, if you want the skill set, then I can't manifest that in a day. But if you want somebody that knows our customer, that has spent hundreds of hours on the phone with our customer, that knows our product like the back of their hand, that can write messaging that gets their attention, that uh, knows the team, uh, if you're willing to teach me some of the hard skills, I think I think I could be your girl. And he told me when he made me the offer, he was like, that was the moment that I knew. And he like sent an email to finance like on the on the interview. And he was like, okay, we need to make Zoe an offer. So like it was just a cool moment of like all that work and intentionality paying off. Now, am I saying if you do all of those things that you're guaranteed to get the job? No, you gotta like work for it. But I do think there's like a very tactical, practical way to approach that. And for me, again, it goes back to what do you not want to do? What do you want to do? Go make best friends with people in that department. Find out the skills and the skill gaps and then just like interview the hell out of yourself so that you're the obvious choice for the job. You want to make it a very easy yes for the hiring manager. Before going into what it is that you're doing today, Zoe, I just want to touch on two points because I, I feel like it's important to highlight for the listener. Number one, listing out things that you hate to do not only helps you frame what it is that you want for the next role or even your current role, but you'll never go back to doing those things once you define them, or at least you can make a path forward to get out of that work. And that's not to say that those tasks aren't useful because to a certain degree, almost every task with given direction and goals is important to a business, but it's just not for you. And you want to do things that you're passionate about. So that's the first thing. Wants to double click on that. The second thing, and I, I really think that this is so important. When you are looking to transfer from one department to another or from one role within a department to another, doing it within an organization is easier because, as you mentioned, you have that social capital, right? That reputation that's built from you just being a badass at what you're currently doing. And then two, institutional knowledge. Like, it, it's not something you scoff at. It's not something you ignore. If it takes... I think the stat is like it takes 45% of someone's salary when they leave to retrain a new hire or something along those lines. Why spend that 45% when you can just get this person who wants the job from another department, work with the executive team and say, okay, we're going to basically transfer because that's basically the pitch that you had. You didn't have five years of experience, but you knew the customer, you knew the vertical, and you knew how to speak to them. What more can uh, a VP of marketing ask for at the end of the day? Hey there. If you're enjoying this episode and you're a first time listener, why not hit the follow button? My goal with each of these episodes is to introduce a new marketing concept or dive deeper into one so that you can become a better digital marketer. Hopefully through these episodes, you join me on this journey, the path to CMO. So I'd love it if you subscribed. Thanks for listening so far. Yeah, especially for like an entry level role, I think it it probably gets a little different or a little dicey if I was like a director of sales being like, I want to go be a director of marketing. Like those are just a really different skill set. But if you're like a little earlier on in your career and it's a moment to take a pivot like that, that's the way to do it to your point. And I just think that internally it's going to be a much lower lift, a much easier yes from the department, especially if it's it's about the story that you tell too. Like I was clear to tell that story. I'm sure I could have interviewed and left out all of those details and not said the whole like, oh, well, like she has more experience, but you could hire her. And like that could have been the end of the conversation versus like, well, this is what I bring to the table. 
So I think it's just knowing your strengths, knowing how you can bring impact, explaining how you can shorten your learning curve. Um, and I think that that comes across as valuable. And like just like the eagerness and the hunger to learn is also really important, especially for a marketer. Like it's so important that we remain curious and ambitious. And I think if you can convey that in the interview process in subtle ways or in very clear ways, uh, it's going to help you out. One area of skill sets that I'm trying to learn, and this is where my curiosity is leaning at the current moment. I don't want to get a sales job, but I've heard time and time again now from at least seven people on this podcast that were sales reps that then transitioned into marketing as well, that sales skills are important for marketers. For the listener who doesn't want to get a sales job but wants to know what kind of skills should they be trying to learn on the side to be a better marketer, what would be those sales skills that they should be focusing on? Yeah, so I say this all the time too. I say that like because of my background in sales, I think I have a unique perspective in marketing. I think it makes me a better marketer. I think it makes me a more dangerous marketer. I'm not saying it makes me a better marketer than the next marketer. I just don't think I would be as good at my job if I didn't have that sales foundation. And the things that I think really dial into that is one, just like the empathy that you have to exhibit and learn in sales on a one-to-one -one basis. That only helps you when you're trying to go one-to-many. Like if you can do that on a one-to-one -one level, then you can do it on a one-to-many level. And so I think um, empathy, copywriting, having to write my own sequences, that really choppy email copy is meaningful. In fact, I actually think that a lot of times when people hire me, they like that I have more of a salesy email copy as opposed to a marketing copy because it converts a little bit better, at least in my limited experience. There's obviously a place for marketing copy, but if you're trying to get like conversions from your emails, uh, sometimes there's, you know, it's helpful to have like a little bit of a salesy perspective in there. Um, and then I think just like the training of sales itself, I'm really grateful that I have the experience cold calling and cold emailing and cold DMing. I can't tell you how many times that's come in handy when I'm trying to get information from a customer that has never met me or trying to uh, do an interview with like potentially somebody who could be a prospect or get somebody on our advisory board or like you still have to make requests of strangers. And if you know how to cold reach out to somebody and create something compelling that gets them to say, yeah, I'll meet with you for 15 minutes. Even if I'm not selling them something, I'm still asking them for their time. And so the ability to strike up a conversation with a stranger and provide value to them is like far and away the best skill that I learned in sales. And that has helped me as a marketer. Could you give a little bit more context for the listener what it is that you're doing today? Yeah, so um, I am running executive presence, evangelism, influencer marketing, and community uh, over at Apollo, which is pretty exciting. Great team. And um, the product is just awesome. I think one thing that I'd been missing in the last few years of my career is I love marketing and selling to salespeople. Like, it's just like so near and dear to my heart. I also love marketing and selling to marketers. And, you know, enablement, close in proximity, RevOps, close in proximity, but there's, I just have more empathy just naturally because I've sat in the seat of salespeople and marketers. And so the ability to speak with, talk with, support that persona was just like an opportunity I couldn't pass up. Plus this team is really incredible, but um, it's just fun getting to like help executives build their personal brands, help equip the team with employee advocacy, 
uh, manage our influencer relationships and build community for founders looking to scale, go to market. Like those are the people I want to talk to all day and I get to. There are two terms that I feel like everyone has a different definition for. Let's start off with community. What does it mean? How does it function within a marketing team? Can you explain that? Yeah, of course. And I think this, like, it's the worst answer ever, but it's like, it depends. It depends on the company. I think community, like, at a high level, more philosophical definition, I've always said uh, it's a well we can draw from when we're empty and a place we can pour into when we're overflowing. So it's this, like, reciprocal motion, right? And it's a place where people come, like, we all need community as human beings. And I think professionally, uh, there's a lot of meeting and benefit from having community, whether you're trying to get better at your job, whether you're trying to help prospects, whether it's a customer community, it doesn't matter. I kind of split community into to three buckets. There's sort of like the agnostic community, something like a women in sales where like they're their own thing. Like they're a community first company. It's not like they have a, a product, like they do marketing and all of that stuff, but it's a community, right? Incredible community. Then you've got something like Apollo that has a customer community and like a place for their users since they have a PLG motion to come together and interact and learn and grow. And I think that is like a place where people can engage, share best practices, get better with the product. Then there are companies that are building communities as sort of like an acquisition strategy. So um, I think of, I think it's Sonar Software um, who have, is it? like the WizOps or something like that. Like they have their own community, but it's also like an acquisition channel, right? Like they're trying to generate business from this community. So it's not exclusive to their customers. Anyone can join, but it's like clearly an acquisition strategy. So I think there's a lot of different things sort of in between those three that people use, but those would kind of be like the core buckets I would dump it into. And I think you can approach it a lot of different ways. It depends on the company's goals. Do you want acquisition? Do you want better usage? Do you want just closer proximity to your customers so you can have more conversations with them? Do you want product feedback? Like you can use community in a lot of different ways. And so I think it depends on your goals. But um, I particularly love communities that are uh, for skill development as well as an acquisition strategy. But I hate like pitchy communities. It's like value, 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 value. And then you are the obvious choice when somebody's like, oh, I think like, I need help with this thing. And Apollo's been helping us a ton. Maybe we should talk to them because their tool also solves this problem. Like that's the way that I see community as an acquisition channel, not as like a, let me set a hundred salespeople loose to uh, just bombard these (laughs) community members. That's not really a great way to sell. Two things on that before we move on to the next question where I want to dive into another term. When it comes to community for skills development. I like that concept because I've always had this idea that when it comes to B2B specifically, you're not selling only a product or solution to a problem. You want to ideally have it so that your your brand is a part of open job descriptions and resumes where someone's bragging about the fact that they know how to use Sprout Social. They know how to use HubSpot. They know how to use Braze, Looker, et cetera. Yes. And the second thing um, before... Before um, I cut you off, but before going into that, I wanted to know your thoughts on how to position, and maybe this is what you're going to talk about, how to position a B2B brand as a skill. Because I feel like that's something that's, not over, that's very overlooked. Time. 
I think first your brand has to become synonymous with like a category in some way. So like something like a Salesforce. Salesforce is a skill. HubSpot is a skill. But it's really just like the idea of being able to build flows in like a CRM, right? So like if I see somebody who can build Salesforce, I might also assume they could probably figure out, you know, other tools that are similar to Salesforce, right? Uh, if you know outreach, you could probably figure out sales law. If you know Apollo, you like probably could hack it with other tools um, that do like parts of what Apollo does, that kind of thing. So I think first it's like you have to have a brand that people know and people have to know the problem your brand solves. Like full stop, they have to understand like what do people go to Apollo for? Are they going there because of the sales engagement? Are they going there for leads? Are they going there for like conversational intelligence? Is it all of it, you know? And so I just think... Um, to your point, for it to be something like skill development, you have to just have a big enough brand that people care. Like, you have to have a big enough brand that people care. And you have to be a brand, I also think, that is really leading with education. A brand that does this really well, I think, is Lavender. Um, they're out there giving free email writing tips, whether you use their tool or not. Now, there's a bunch of ways to augment that and make it a lot easier if you're using Lavender. But they're giving away their best information for free at all times. They gate pretty much nothing other than the tool itself. So I think that like maybe Lavender doesn't show up as like a skill on uh, a resume, but email copy does. And if you're somebody who can write a good email and you just happen to use Lavender, like that goes a long way. Shout out to Chelsea Castle, previous guest. Love Chelsea. I had a sub question or a, a tangent I wanted to go into when it comes to community. Can a community also be a replacement for a customer advisory board or should those two things be separate? So I have done it both ways. Um, I've okay. actually started a community with a customer advisory board and then opened it up and almost created like tiers of a community. So there's like the super secret level one community okay. members who are the cab. But then there's like every user is welcome to the community. So maybe there's certain private channels where like the cab exists. Um, but the community at large, then people can like interact with one another and it's not gated in that way so i like the idea of having them housed in the same place but also creating like a delineation so that the cab feels special because like especially if they're giving you more than the average community member like my job with community is to give 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 like i need to give as much as i possibly can so that when i ask for a withdrawal it's an easy yes like so much of my career i've just learned my <laughs> My friend's dad spoke at our high school graduation. He gave us five tips for being successful. And I don't remember four of them. But one of them was make it an easy yes. Like in everything you do, make it an easy, obvious yes. Like if you are asking for a raise, if you are asking for time off, if you're like, he was just talking about like going into the professional world, if you're asking for an extension on your paper or whatever, he was just like, make it so easy for them to say yes, that it would just be like a no brainer. And that has stuck with me. And so when I think about community, there's the benefit of community is the knowledge you get from your customers, is the conversations you get to witness in real time, is the direct access to your users or to people who could potentially be your users. And so when you make those asks, you have to do it really thoughtfully and you need to do it in a way that it is an easy yes. And the best way to do that that I found is just like, give as much as you can before you ever have to ask to take. With community being discussed, I want to know 
how do you define evangelism? I think evangelism is anyone being a megaphone for the brand. That would be like the smallest, simplest way I could put it. Um, I think people have different advantages. I think if you have more following, your megaphone is turned up a little louder. I think if you are the exact direct persona, your megaphone's turned up a little louder. If you are an executive, even with a small following, your megaphone's turned up a little louder. You have to think about like the perception people have. And it's like, if I go and talk about, I'm making this up, but like, let's say Gong reached out to me and was like, hey, do you want to, you know, like be a like influencer or evangelist for the brand? I would be like, not against it, but it's like, I'm not a user of their product. So that's not going to come. I've used it in the past, but it's like not going to come out as authentically as somebody who might be like a sales leader. Uh, you know, I was just seeing somebody earlier today who was like a sales leader who uses Apollo and they were posting about how much they love the tool. And I was like, there's a lot of authenticity behind that because I know you used it. You talked about numbers that you have seen leveraging the tool and you're a leader in the space who is our persona, who we want to sell to. So I think there's evangelists that exist outside of your company. I think there's a lot to identify evangelists within your existing company, people who want to raise their hands, people who want to shout out the brand. I think that there's a lot to the strategy of like identifying persona-based evangelists. So like perfect example, um, Caroline Maloney is on our team. She has a long history of doing SDR enablement. So her speaking specifically to SDRs and how to use Apollo is a much more meaningful story than if she was out there constantly trying to like pitch to marketers. Like she is a marketer. This is her first job in marketing. But like it's just more meaningful because her audience, her expertise, her history is in sales development. So like identifying her as an evangelist to that specific persona or channel makes a ton of sense to me. And then like maybe we get an AE who speaks about sales reps. Maybe we get a sales manager internally who's excited about building a brand who wants to evangelize the brand. So I think you identify brand champions and internal evangelists. I evangelize the brand by just leveraging my own community. And then I think the executives have an opportunity to evangelize the brand. There was a Forbes article back in February that talked about how buyers are 77% more likely to buy from a brand whose executives are active on social media. It's like a real stat that I read earlier this year. I read another one a few years ago, and that was like when I first got into this and starting to try and like build executive evangelism programs uh, that I think Forrester did. And it was... Um, it was 86% of people who had a bad experience with a brand would be willing to try again if their executives were active on social media and seemed like they had an authentic presence there, which I thought was like just a mind-blowing stat that like it builds trust if, if you feel like you can see what's happening in the business, whether it's real or perceived. And so those two stats really stick out in my head and like are why I push so hard for it's a low lift to get your executives on to social media. And I say a low lift in the sense of like there are things that you can do to make it a low lift for them. Um, but it's such a high payoff in terms of like brand reputation, in terms of, you know, pipeline generation. It's organic content. You're not paying for ads. You're just, you know, turning your brand's megaphone up to 11. I, I work in B2C, but I do believe that there is ancillary or tangential benefit to having a lot of the executives at my organization start posting on social media at the very least for employer branding when we need new headcount and quality talent 
doing this work ahead of time is going to bring in the engineers, the tech people, et cetera, that we need to expand the business. When you talk about making it easy for executives, I've attempted this and I'll be honest, I failed. I, I made it sound way more complicated than it should have been portrayed, especially at the beginning. For the listener who wants to pitch a personal branding program, whatever you want to call it, evangelism program, for or or to use the executives as the core of it. Yep. How do you go about pitching that? Yeah, it's a great question. Successfully. Yeah. So I think first things first, you always lead with what's in it for me. So you start with the stats. You start with like the numbers that I just shared. You start with, hey, I think we could get this kind of impressions, this kind of whatever. I mean, what? It's like three on average, three dollars for a thousand organic, not organic, a thousand impressions via like ads kind of on average, if my own personal LinkedIn last month got, let's see, 1.6 million impressions. Like how much money did we save by not dumping that into ads, right? People seeing the brand, that kind of thing. So I think it's like you start with the numbers and you say, this is, I think, the impact we can drive. And then they're like, okay, that impact sounds interesting, but it sounds like a lot of work. And that's where you go, you go to make it an easy yes. So it depends on the executive. First, you need somebody who's bought in, who's like, I want to be the face of the company. And that's why you start with the like, here's why you should be. Then they're like, okay, I want to be the face of the company. How do we do it? There's a lot of ways you could do it. If they want to write, great, let them write. And I just kind of help them sort of like format it in a LinkedIn friendly way. If they don't, there's a lot of other things you can do. If there's somebody who's like been on a lot of podcasts, I convert all those podcasts into like a hundred different LinkedIn posts. If they haven't been on any podcasts, I could sit down with them for an hour a month and ask them a bunch of questions that I can spin into 30 posts. If they aren't, don't have the time for that, I can just ask to be a fly on the wall in meetings where they're talking about company vision, where they're talking to their department. You try and look for these sort of like organic content moments that already exist because again it's about the lowest lift the easiest yes and then can i just go in and spin up a bunch of posts for them and then it's like hey here's 20 posts i tried to write it in your voice as best as i could um you know here's a schedule if you want to post them these days go for it and then when they post i go pull their link i drop it in a group channel for the team internally we all hype it up and then it starts to get traction and eventually they now have like people outside of the business understanding who they are and it kind of takes off organically. So that's where I would start if I was like me and another organization starting from ground zero trying to get buy-in. It's like start with the numbers and what you think the impact could be. And start with like a defined timeline. Like, hey, can we try this for a quarter and just measure the results? I think it really takes two quarters for it to like generate super meaningful impact, especially if your executives are starting from like nothing. But I think you'll see results in three months that will give you an indication of whether or not you want to keep going. So I think define timelines, define goals, desired impact, um, the savings is a, a big one usually for executives. And then again, making it an easy lift on them, taking as much of it off their plate as you can or as they want. Um, if they want to write for themselves, go for it. But sometimes executives need a ghostwriter where they're just dumping their thoughts into a doc or into a, a Zoom recording or team meeting or something somebody else is taking notes and then you flip that into a bunch of content so it's still their thought leadership and their thoughts um and that just depends like it depends on the executive the executives i work with like a lot of them want to like share their own thoughts you know like i'm i'm not just like a ghost writer here but i have ghost written for other companies in the past and so that's like an option if you had executives who were like i don't want to write we can 
we could spend a lot of time here and let's see where this goes. I, I experienced a challenge multiple times, I think at least four times already, where working in the past, I tried to create content for executives. It never, it never hit the mark. And going back, like it's always hindsight is 2020. I would have tried to continue using this program, but probably worked with my team to delegate it to someone else. With that being said, this scenario, and there might be other scenarios that you can touch on, when do you know to wave the white flag and either see if someone else can handle that particular executive or if the program doesn't work at all? Yeah, I think that's where like having sort of smart goals comes into play or like having an actual timeline. You say like, hey, we're just going to measure this. Um, and if you feel like you could get better results just spinning up ads, then, you know, forget the program. But if it's clear that the organic juice is worth the squeeze, uh, then I think you keep going. And I think you scale when multiple executives are like, well, I want to be doing this too. And it's all about like giving them the support that they need. Because again, like I'm not just like a ghostwriter here. I've done that in the past, but that's not what I'm doing today. Like it's more so creating a program that makes it really easy for the executive to like dispel their their thoughts uh, or not dispel, sorry, uh, distribute their thoughts in the easiest fashion possible. So I'm just like creating support. They're the ones creating the content. But I mean, like if you work for an executive that's really, really freaking busy and they have happened to have written a book or they have content from the past that you can repurpose and rewrite with like some new perspective or something like that, like that is an option. So I don't know. I think you just have to kind of realize like how much time it's taking. And I think when the results are are positive and you're like, OK, I don't have enough time for this anymore to like create at the volume we need to create, then you bring somebody on. And maybe it's somebody part time or maybe it's somebody full time. Maybe you build out a team. I also think as the team grows, like the need for executive evangelism grows. So we're starting with, you know, a handful of executives over here, but I could see it being every executive on the team wants their own program. And at some point when we've got 15 executives who want, you know, this sort of program, it's like, I would need to make that like my full time. That's all I'm doing. Um, and maybe that is or isn't what I want to do. But it's all about kind of doubling down on what's working and like leaving behind what's not. We've talked about this, this cl cluster of topics, community evangelism, executive presence. Can any of these things help sales collateral? Yeah, I think so. I think um, I think taking executive presence is going to get a couple things that happen. One, I think you're going to see improved retention. I think you're going to see improved adoption. I think you're going to see better buy-in with earlier customers because they see the executives on. I also think you're going to see an easier path to connection between executives at your company and executives at your customer's company, which would make it really, really easy to create customer stories, to create interviews um. between two CEOs, right? Like what if you got my CEO and then one of our top customer CEOs together, like in a room for 15 minutes and we record that conversation and we talk about go-to-market strategy. And now that's like a resource that can either be sold, like used to elevate the product or it's just like a useful educational resource that lives free on the site you know like I think there's a lot that you can do when your executives have more of a presence because like they're like executives work so hard they have so much knowledge and so much of it just like lives internally and if you can just kind of like 
open up the window a little bit and give people a peek behind the curtain. I think there's so much value to be gained and a lot to be given. Uh, and so I think that there are some really interesting kind of like customer story related collateral, educational related collateral, um, and even just like getting meetings and conversations with people that maybe I, just like a senior manager of evangelism, might not be able to get. But my CEO could probably very easily make the ask because people know who he is. We're nearing the end of the podcast, so I have some rapid fire questions for you. See if you can answer any of these with one to two sentences. And okay. if there's a follow-up, I'll just jump right in. So first rapid fire question, does every marketer need a side hustle? No, I don't okay. think so. I think it's up, I think it's up to you. Like if you want to be working in your five to nine, work in your five to nine. If that brings you joy, it brings me joy. But if you don't, like go live your life. Outside of the side hustle, should every marketer be building a presence on LinkedIn, whether to monetize or not? I think it it's super beneficial, but like sweeping generalizations are just tough for me. Like yes. I don't think everybody has to. I do think whether you're building on LinkedIn or just like networking behind the scenes, you do need a network. It doesn't have to be public, but I do think that like I haven't had to apply to my last four roles and it's because I have a network, not just a personal brand, but like people who know me, people who trust me, people who've worked with me. And that is incredibly valuable. That is in employment insurance. And so I think whether Ooh, you are doing it I like publicly, <laughs> I think whether you're doing it publicly or privately, you need to have a network. If you can list them out in one to two words each, what are marketing skills that every marketer should be learning this year? Copywriting, copywriting, copywriting. I like whether you make ads, actually that, and I think just like basic data analytics. I think okay. you need to be able to, I think every marketer needs to be a little data driven. I think every marketer needs to be able to write um, and tell a story because whether you are presenting numbers, you need to be able to tell that story so people understand the numbers or whether you are telling a story, you need some data to back up those quote unquote facts that you're spitting. So I think those two go hand in hand regardless of your role. What does it take to actually become an advisor of a startup? This is interesting. I have stumbled my way into several. I think you have to be like known for something. I, I think see. you just, you have to have an area of expertise. I don't think you have to have an enormous following. I think you just have to be known as somebody who knows a thing or two about a thing or two. You don't have to know everything about everything. And so people usually ask me to be an advisor because they want help with community or evangelism or personal brand for their teams. Like that's that's typically all I advise on. I'm not like giving people sales advice. I might talk to them a little bit about partnerships because I know a little about that. But yeah, know a thing or two about a thing or two and be known as a person who knows a thing or two about a thing or two. Two more questions for you, Zoe. What are your go-to routines or rituals that you do personally just to have a good career? Um, this one I learned from Christine Rogers. She's the COO at Aspireship. Every morning, I listen to sales calls. Doesn't like it doesn't I listen to recordings. Um, so instead of a podcast or um, and by every morning, I mean like four days a week. Usually there ends up being like a day where I end up having meetings or something. But that first like 45 minutes of my day, I'm usually trying to be online before the rest of my team. Um, or historically I have been. And I just listen to sales conversations because if I pick up on objections, I pick up on the language that our prospects are saying. I think it helps me write better. I think it helps me speak to our customers more eloquently when I use their language. So 
listen to sales calls. I love day. that. I love making that a ritual. Now, Zoe, my last question for you is hypothetical because time machines do not exist. But if one did and you can go back into the past, knowing everything you know today, how would you specifically accelerate the speed of your career? Um, I would actually slow it down. I, that's probably not the answer you wanted, but I, I actually think I would tell myself, like, spend a little more time in this role. I wish I had spent a little bit more time doing outbound. I was outbound for nine months. I wish I had given it like a year to a year and a half because I think that skill is just so foundational to everything else that I do. Um, I also wish I would have spent more time working for Mandy Schnurl. She's the best boss I've ever had. And um, I just think I could have learned from her for years. So maybe not, I think those things would have slingshot my career. Maybe it would have held me back for a short period of time, but launched me forward in the long run. Second guess to say that they would slow down. Actually, third guess. One person, uh, Justin Mink, said he would slow down just because of his physical health. He was working mm, way yeah, too hard. Too. And then Trisha Gallagher from Marketree says she would slow down just to learn more, solidify it in her brain before moving up the corporate ladder. So I like that you mentioned that as well because now there's more and more guests that are saying you don't always need to move super fast to get where you're going. If you slow down, you'll appreciate the journey, collect more skills over time, and then be more prepared when you do get that, yeah. that coveted position. I just think it's not about quick moves. It's about strategic moves, mm, right? Like it's chess. Like it's, yeah, it's like you, you could win in you know 15 really quick moves or you could win in six really thoughtful ones. I don't really play chess. I don't, I don't know how many okay. moves it takes. But Got it. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Well, Zoe, thanks again for being on the podcast. If anyone wanted to say hello, where can they find you online? Um, not too corporate on TikTok and Instagram. Not too corporate Zoe on YouTube and Zoe Hartsfield on LinkedIn. That's really it. That's all the places I am. Awesome. Thanks again, Zoe. And thanks to you, the listener, for listening to another episode of the People Digital Marketing Podcast. This is episode 144. And if you've listened to this for more than once, I won't ask this of the new listeners, but if you've listened to this more than once and you haven't done these three things, please do so. Number one, subscribe to this podcast so that you can get updates. Number two, rate this podcast and tell us what you think. Tell the world what you think about this podcast. And number three, if you haven't done so, please share this with another marketer who you think can benefit from all of the lessons that we're learning in each episode. On the next episode, episode 145, we will have Evan Patterson on the show. And in this conversation, we're basically doing a deeper dive specifically into evangelism. Zoe gave a lot of information, but now we're going to dive even deeper with Evan and his experience running B2B evangelism programs. And what I like about this interview is we're also going to talk about what is the difference between B2B community marketing and B2C community marketing, which I think isn't discussed a lot on LinkedIn and it should be. So if you're interested in listening to that episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate this podcast and share it with a coworker. And as always, thanks again for listening.